The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. 30 seconds, and as you do, please open your copy of God's Word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. Would you pray with me? And Father, we commit this time now to the study of your Word. Uh, we sit under it, and even now as I, I preach and proclaim the, the good news of the gospel, God, I am as much in need of its truth and its nourishment as anyone here. And so, God, we pray that through the Spirit, our minds and our hearts would be opened and illuminated to the word of Jesus, that we would uh, hear it, receive it, obey it, and walk in light of it. We ask, God, that you would now begin to uh, quiet our minds and help us to focus and hone our attention on what it is that you would have us see and know through your word this morning, that the distractions of our lives and uh, all the many things that we're thinking of uh, from this past week or what we have left to do for this week uh, for some time would be suspended so that we would become students of your word and we would eat and feast and be satisfied this morning. We pray for those who cannot be here through sickness or uh, work or for whatever reason. We know there are many, uh, many who are still dealing with sickness. I think of Jonah and some of the Honorio kids and I think of others who are traveling. So we, God, we pray for rest, recovery, health, and uh, encouragement for, for those who know you and uh, for those who are taking care of others. Uh, but Lord, we give this time to you now for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 23, where we left off last week in verse 9, and we'll work our way through the end of chapter 24. Uh, before I begin to do that, I want to tell you of really... Uh, a providential situation I found myself in earlier this week as I was walking through downtown doing my weekly business and uh, moving truthfully from coffee shop to coffee shop, I ran into what I think you would call a fairly well-known evangelical preacher. In fact, you may recognize his name if I were to share it. We've had one or more of his books on our shelf here in our library of sorts. And you've probably heard his sermons or at least a sermon clip from this Dear brother, and I was, by God's grace, able to run into him on the streets as he was here for some other reason and was able to share with him my life and share with him about you. And he was very excited to hear what the Lord was doing. In fact, he offered to pray for foundation. And in praying, he declared really over, over us three beautiful truths that he encouraged us to hold on to. As I had this run-in with this well-known preacher, he declared three things. First, that we are going to grow tenfold. That is, numerically, tenfold. That's times ten for those who don't. Ten. So if we have 50 people in the room today, ten times that would be 500 over the next year. He declared that over the next year we will see not less than 100 conversions. People coming to Christ and being baptized into the body of Christ, his church. And he declared that we too, within the next year, will have a permanent home in downtown, no longer just renting perhaps the basement of some business, but that we would have a home and doors from which we would bring all nations and from which all nations would be sent. And all we have to do is to believe this, to hold on to the truth, and nothing else will matter. If this is the truth of what God has revealed to this dear righteous brother who prays and declares over us what God had put on his heart, then all we have to do is simply believe this truth 
and it will be. For as James says, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Well, I hope to some degree you are cherishing the thought of those truths, but I must admit that story isn't true at all. That story comes from my mind. It doesn't come from God's word. He didn't run into a famous evangelical preacher. He didn't pray those things. Yet how many Christians today are led astray to believe much more subtler forms of encouragement and truth in the form of a sermon or an encouragement or a pep talk that speak more to the ambitions of our hearts than the purposes that God reveals through his word? I think we all might want to see our church grow tenfold, to see not less than 100 conversions, to one day own a building in downtown where we can send and receive. But the reality is God might have different purposes for our church. He may not have us ever grow beyond the 50 mark. We may permanently rent. We may never see more than one conversion or even less a year. Churches around the country and around the world today are sitting under preachers some who might call themselves prophets, who speak to the ambitions of their own hearts, the dreams and the visions of their own minds, rather than to God's word. And many Christians are led astray by these. They're led astray by what God has revealed to them, so they say, which leads them actually further away from the God's truth. So how does falsehood find its way into our faith? Well, I think maybe, I hope, for effect only, for about 10 seconds you began to believe what I told you this morning. And in some small way you began to also hope that that would be true. And that God might actually have revealed that to this dear brother. And that the prayers of a righteous man truly availing much would indeed render true for us. And those are great and wonderful things to pray for, to hope for, and ask God of. But there are many more nefarious things slipped under the guise of prosperity and what God may want in his will, even using God's word to justify it, which those who teach and communicate and tell you what God wants you to know use to justify their own ambitions and deceitful schemes. How does falsehood find its way into our faith? It begins when we allow the imaginations of our hearts to run wild and rampant without the guiding and grounding presence of God's word to keep us from running afoul of God's will. We avoid hard truths and uncomfortable truths because they make us uncomfortable. And when we do this, when we seek to avoid such hard truths, uncomfortable truths, we find ourselves running straight into the open arms of a deceiver that is more than willing to keep us happy while leading us to hell. Brothers and sisters, my goal this morning is not to make you happy. And it's certainly not to lead you to hell, but to lead you through the word to know and understand God's will, not only for your life, but for his church. This is the case here in Jeremiah. Last week we saw how the, the shepherds or the kings of Judah were leading or misleading the people into destruction, into captivity. He named the kings that are to blame for their idolatry. Great responsibility of the Davidic line to keep the commandments of God, to honor the covenant that he made with them, and to protect and preserve his people. 
But the king didn't do this. And so by taking on the sins and the idolatries of other nations and bringing them into even the very temple itself, they defiled and led to destruction the people of God. And the kings alone were not just to blame, but so were the people who followed them, who put their trust in them. This this morning's text in chapter 23 and onwards is the continuation of recognizing what has gone wrong in Judah. The kings themselves are not to blame, but also the prophets, those religious individuals, the leaders, the shepherds of God's flock there in Judah, who was to remain steadfast in their devotion to God to recognize the error and the sin and the idolatry as it came in so that you could weed out the evil from among them. But instead of protecting the flock, they are the very ones who allowed and enabled the flock to sin and fall into idolatry. So Jeremiah has a scathing rebuke to these prophets, people who claim to have a message from God that ultimately sought the destruction of his people rather than the preservation of his people. So turn your attention, please, again to chapter 23, verse 9. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse The land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their house is evil, their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. And all of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For the prophet, from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own mind, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, and yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? I do, not, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? 
I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying that I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies, who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell them, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who steals my words from another. Behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send people at all, declares the Lord. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, well, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden, and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. As for the prophet, priest, or one of the people who says, the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. And thus you shall say, everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what has the Lord answered? What has the Lord spoken? But the burden of the Lord you shall mention no more, for the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord... Thus says the Lord to you, because you have said these words, the burden of the Lord, when I sent you, saying you shall not say the burden of the Lord, therefore you will surely lift up and cast you away from my presence. And you and the city that I gave you and your fathers, and I will bring upon you an everlasting reproach and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. And after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jekoina, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, cannot be eaten. And then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent far away from this place into the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad that they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall send and drive them. And I will send a sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them, their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A long text indeed, but having read and sat through this both 
the indictment against the prophets and the priests who were to be the religious shepherds of Judah. And against this vision we see against the, the figs, the inhabitants there in, not those in exile, but those in Jerusalem, we see that God has a word. That those who follow these false teachings themselves will bring judgment upon them. But those who trust in God, though they reap their redeemed, built up and not torn down, that God will keep for himself a remnant, preserve for himself a people, and has plans he still intends to fulfill. The problem in Judah is that the people are listening to false prophets. These are religious leaders who are leading people astray into idolatry. But that's only one side of the problematic coin, that Judah is listening to false prophets the other side is that they are not listening to the true prophets. They have turned their ear to those who speak lies instead of devoting themselves to those who speak truth, namely here to Jeremiah, who God has sent as his people, to his people, as a prophet to speak truth. What we see here in the rest of chapter 23 is this biblical assessment of false prophets. There's much throughout the Old Testament that speaks to what a prophet must do and must be. Simply put, a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. He receives a word or a revelation from God, and he declares exactly as he received it what God wants him to say or to do. And so a prophet will say, as we read throughout Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, or declares the Lord, because he speaks not on his own authority. He speaks not only his words, but God's alone. So a prophet must speak only what God has commanded him to speak, to do only what God has commanded to do. He has God's message, not his own. The problem, though, is that the message in Judah is coming from the mind of men and not the mouth of God. Not only are they listening to these false teachers and these prophets, following them into idolatry, but they are refusing to listen to truth. And so there's a danger in a particular folly of listening to these false prophets and turning your ear against God's truth. So we have here a biblical assessment of false prophets. We see three things that happen. First, these false prophets have corrupted their way in verse 10 of chapter 23. They are called here adulterers, which you and I know typically as those who are unfaithful. Adultery is like unfaithfulness in their covenant with God. It is religious unfaithfulness to the duty and the responsibility of what their covenant has commanded of them, their sworn responsibility before God. It says in verse 10 that they have corrupted their ways. They are idolaters. They are evil, declares the Lord. Not only have they corrupted their way, but they enable wickedness. In verse 13, we see that they have strengthened the hand of evildoers by their false prophesying, by their lies. They lead them into destruction and encourage, enable, and promote the evil that these people would do. We saw earlier in Jeremiah that some of the evil included sacrificing their own children. Not only were they corrupted in their own way, not only did they enable wickedness, but we see later in verses 14 and 15 that they led the people wayward, away from God. They have polluted the land and the people with their falsehoods. These prophets are hazardous heralds of a fiction that benefits no one. It is empty, Jeremiah says. 
Their words are futile. There's nothing to be gained by listening and everything to lose. They have poisoned the land and the well from which these people are drinking. Let's consider the lies that they tell. We learn first of meaning that they come from their own imaginations. They make these things up from every whim of fancy and ingenuity in their own mind. No doubt these prophets are very charismatic. They command an audience. Maybe they speak well or good orators. But what they say comes not from the mouth of God, but from the mind of men. They have more in common with their own desires and ambitions than they do with the will and the purposes of God and His Word. They don't lead them to what God has for them, but away from what God has warned them. These lies are created from their own imaginations in verse 16. Their imaginations led them to picture a God whose will is indistinguishable from their own desires. Surely, if God wants what is good for us, He must want what we think is good for ourselves. And so the acceptance of our political neighbors, the peace from the warring factions among us, prosperity and gold and power and status, certainly this is what God wants from us. And so as we listen to the lies of these false prophets, we learn that the imaginations and the message that they preach means that God has a will which is indistinguishable from our own desires. The medium itself is no issue. Whether they come in dreams doesn't matter. It's the origin here that God has a problem with. The origin is from their own minds and imaginations and not from God. He says, I didn't send them. I didn't talk to them. They're not speaking what I've told them to say. They've made all of this up on their own. Many men and prophets will have visions in the Old Testament. We see visions even in the New Testament. We see lots of miraculous things we can only explain that God alone has done in the lives of these individuals. The medium itself is not the issue. It is where the message comes from. There's an infinitely qualitative difference between the mind of men and the mouth of God. For never in our wildest dreams, never in our most advanced civilizations or the smartest of intellects can we understand fully and anticipate the mind of God. He often says things that run counterintuitive to our own logic and our understanding. His ways indeed are not our ways. He's not like us. So when we think about the word of God, we must seek it as a qualitatively different thing than the words of men. It does not operate or exist on the same plane, even if we understand it and receive it in our own language. That what comes from the but he has made it intelligible so that we indeed could hear it. But we must recognize that what comes from the mouth of God is only borrowing our language. So whether it comes in dreams or visions, it doesn't matter. Let the man who dreams speak of his dreams. But one who receives the word of the Lord, let him declare that word, Jeremiah says. So their lies are created. Secondly, their lies are convenient. Notice that they're not speaking anything hard. They're not saying anything that the people don't want to hear. They're not telling them how difficult it's going to be. They're not telling and warning them like Jeremiah is that destruction is coming if they don't repent. They're encouraging and enabling their evil. It keeps them in power. It keeps their status or the paycheck coming. 
They get to stand in the position of authority over those who give them their attention, to give them their money, to give them their time. These are convenient lies. They benefit no one except those who tell them. In the New Testament, we're warned of those who come and preach convenient lies today, who come to tickle the ears of those who desire to have them tickled. Fine-sounding arguments and crafty schemes will lead us astray, but we accept them and we swallow them because they sound good to us. They confirm all of our biases. They tell us exactly what we want. They don't confront us. They don't tell us what we really need to do to change. They often don't speak of sin or repentance. Or if they do, it's in a minor surface-level way of things we all can work on, but they don't address the real sin lurking in the deep crevices of our own heart. The lies of these false prophets are fiction that are just convenient. But lastly, we see not only are they created and are convenient, but they ultimately are condemning, aren't they? Because they don't warn of what's really to come, they condemn the listeners. They don't say, God is angry with you, Judah. And if you don't repent of your sin, you will suffer. God's wrath will come and it will not stop until it is fully satisfied against you. And the only way is to cast yourself upon the mercy of God, return to his ways. If you do this, you will survive. God has promised a way forward. But if you don't, there will be famine, destruction, sword. You will die. You'll be carted off in exile. You will never receive the height of majesty, power, and glory which we once had before. He talks about if they had really received these words, they'd be singing a different tune. It wouldn't be one of a major key of all that God has for his people, but it would be one of a severe minor key. It'd be one more like a dearth than a celebratory tune. It would be speaking of the judgment of God. Maybe you're tired of hearing me preach from Jeremiah judgment after judgment after judgment. Think of how Jeremiah felt or the inhabitants of Judah. It's one of the reasons they wanted to shut him up. But those who refuse to say what God has intended to say, they are lying. Jeremiah says they didn't come from God. Because if they did, they'd be singing something different. They wouldn't be leading them away from God. They'd be leading him to God, towards repentance. He would be warning them of the judgment that's to come, of the need for repentance. And instead, they're told to ignore Jeremiah and carry on. Well, you can tell the source of a prophet's message by what it actually says about God. Jeremiah's message says that God is holy and he's dealing with sin but also that he's merciful and will forgive sin. It says that there's a purpose behind what God intends to do. It extols God as supreme, as the greatest authority, as one not to be trifled with, but as also one to draw near to in comfort, who both is tender and severe. But the false prophet's picture of God is nothing like this, that God only works for you. It would never be against you. God can't be mad if you're in covenant with him. God, by these false prophets' standard, is small and at the behest of those whose covenant he has entered into. He's not so sovereign that he can thwart the plans of men. But you can often see the fruit from these prophets' teaching. 
shown a picture of God so small that no one would dare follow him. These prophets, God is really a cheap imitation of the real God, the creator. I think one modern example of this, you could think of the Book of Mormon. I don't know how many of you have attempted to read it, but if you do so, one of the things you'll quickly find is that really it's just a ripoff of the Bible. It just sounds like the Bible, and it's a pretty bad imitation as well. Of course, it tries to sound important. It tries to sound like it's words from the Lord, but the picture it paints of God is not at all the God that we know of from the Bible. It doesn't have the gravity and the authority that shouts from the pages of the Old Testament. It seems like a hollow echo vestiges of maybe what God might be like. But in the process of imitating what the New Testament and the Old Testament really says about God and Christ, it ends up making God very, very small. It paints a paltry picture of a God that is truly unable to satisfy the human heart and heal the human condition. He's just granted the power and received the ability to be a God. But he's not the God who is uncreated. He is not the God who we should revere as supreme above all. He is a man, a mortal like we are, and one day we may be like him. You can see how the words that sound like they come from God end up telling a lie about God. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, you can see very quickly that it's a cheap imitation. We know the difference between real leather and fake leather, between fool's gold and real gold. What's the solution to this problem? Well, God, in chapter 24, gives Jeremiah this vision of these figs. There's good figs, very good figs, it says, and bad figs, these very bad figs, figs that are ready to eat, ripe and sweet, and those who are it's not ready. They shouldn't be eaten. They're too sour. They're not ready. No one can eat them. They're destroyed, really. God says these people, they're like Judah, of the exiles, and they're like Jerusalem, and those who follow them. And he says, that I have set my eye on the good figs, and I will treat them as good, just like these figs are good. The solution is that God promises to transform the heart of those on whom it says he has set his eye. He has looked favorably upon, and they will know him in a more direct way, not mediated through a man, but mediated directly through God himself in a more intimate and personal way. He says that they will be his people and he will be their God. And he will do this himself by transforming their heart and they will come to him with their whole heart. Notice that the action here is done and accomplished by God and the responses of those who receive a new heart comes to God with their whole self. The solution is God's promise of a transformed heart. He does not tell them to listen to another prophet or a man whom he will send but to listen to himself. He has set his eye on his people and he will transform them so that he will be their God and they will be his. This, of course, is the promise of the new covenant. Go just a few chapters forward into chapter 31 and hear the words of the New Testament or the new covenant that God promises, starting in verse 27 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with a seed 
of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, Our fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So the promise of the new covenant says that God comes and intends to transform the hearts of those people who are rebellious against him. There's a remnant of those on whom he has set his eye, his love, his favor, and his purposes that will come to fruition in the newness of their heart. And they will become his people, not led astray by an evil, corrupt priest or prophet, but led directly to himself by his own hand, he says. Of course, one does come, the true prophet, But this is no mere man. Paul tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. That Jesus alone can do as a prophet and a priest and a king what no other king, prophet, or priest of Judah could do because he in the flesh was God. He is the Son of God. And so where all human kings, leaders, and shepherds have failed, Christ alone succeeds. And it's in his work of obedience and the humiliation even unto death that we receive the new heart that God here promises to those on whom he will have his eye. This is the solution God provides for his people. It's offered to the Jews and to all those who read these words and trust God, that they too can have a new heart, a heart of flesh, Ezekiel would say, and not of stone. What are we to do with the words and the promises of the new covenant and the warnings against false teachers that teach from the mind of men and not the mouth of God. What do we do often find ourselves in the danger and the foolishness of following false prophets who tend to tickle our ears? A couple exhortations to keep in mind. First, hard and uncomfortable truths are hard and uncomfortable to tell. That seems obvious, doesn't it? But this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to have somebody tell you the truth. Why many teachers, often even including myself, will beat around the bush of a hard thing to say because they don't know how to do it and they don't want to hurt your feelings and they don't want to ruin their friendship and they're not sure what will happen if they say it even though they're convinced maybe it needs to be said or maybe they just don't want to believe it and so they avoid it altogether. The reality is hard things, uncomfortable things, are hard and uncomfortable to say. We avoid these things because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't seek critique from our work. We don't often 
ask people to let us know how we're doing because we're afraid, and probably rightly so, that there's a few things we don't want to hear. Brothers and sisters, we must become willing to hear the hard and uncomfortable truths. So not only is it uncomfortable to tell, it is hard and uncomfortable to hear. But we must hear them. In fact, we're obligated, commanded to listen, to hear, and to walk in God's truth no matter the form it takes, no matter if it hurts us or cuts us down. The promise is, and the irony of the whole situation is that in Hosea 6, God's word comes to cut down his people so that it may bind them back up. He does not simply come to destroy us, but to redeem us. And his words which do the cutting also bind the wound. We must be willing not only to speak hard and uncomfortable truths to one another in love, but also to hear those hard and uncomfortable truths. We are obligated and commanded to listen, to hear, and to walk in God's truths. The Apostle John writes in 2 John verses 7 through 11, this same idea. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. For such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. For everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. For if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is Christ in the flesh, the Son of God, who died for our sins and was risen on the third day, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways and works. The warning is very clear. We must be willing to hear uncomfortable truths about our sin, about our need of repentance, and not those who are simply here to tickle our ears, to encourage us and to speak only good things. For in doing so, they may ultimately deny that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins. They remove the necessity of his death because they refuse to address the need that we have of sin. So it's not just uncomfortable to avoid sin, it's blasphemy. It undermines why Jesus came in the first place. So don't undermine the cross by avoiding topics that are hard and uncomfortable. Be willing to speak these hard and uncomfortable truths and put yourselves in positions, however uncomfortable they may be, to hear them. Lastly, we must then be discerning of this truth. How do I know if it's from God? How do I know if this is what I need to hear? How do I know if I'm not just listening to a false teacher or prophet that is tickling my ears or telling me what I want to hear? How can I be discerning? Well, there are tests both in the Old and New Testament that the people of God at one time or another had to do. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 13, severe warning to a prophet. If a prophet or a dreamer of and that sign or wonder that he tells you come to pass and he says let us go after other gods which you have not done and let us serve them which you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams well, know that for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams 
shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If you read on in that chapter, he says, if your brother or your father or even the wife you cherish, you have to kill him. <laughs> that's how serious they took the word of the Lord. Okay, that's Old Covenant. Maybe we're not taking people out and stoning them outside of the gates today, but consider Galatians 1. Paul urged the apostles, Paul himself, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. Let God's judgment and wrath be on him forever. The gospel is so important because it is the word of God. If anyone who comes and leads God's people away from the truth by teaching something contrary deserves the judgment of God upon them. Doesn't matter how well they say it or how impressive they are. Doesn't matter how many followers they have. The only influence they have is one of wrath. What do we take of this? Faithfulness to truth, to God's word, faithfulness to the truth of God's word, evidenced by our diligence and our submission to it, reveals a love for God whose word it is. Faithfulness to truth demonstrates our faithfulness to God. That's how we can see whether a message comes from the word of God or from the mind of men. That you can see the fruit of those who preach, of those who believe, of those who prophesy in God's name. Faithfulness to truth demonstrates our faithfulness to God. Or more pointedly, a love for God's word, evidenced by our diligence and submission to it, reveals a love for God whose word it is. The two are not mutually exclusive. One comes with the other. If you love God, you must cherish his word. And if you say you love God's word, you must love him who speaks it. Ultimately, consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. He says that I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. Ultimately, because God has given you a transformed heart and has made you a sheep in his flock. And if Christ is your good shepherd, then, friend, you know his voice. And you hear it. You know when someone speaks falsely of Christ. You know when you read the pages of some other religious text that it's a cheap imitation of what God has been saying for ages. You know that when someone tries to, to speak about Christianity in your presence that something is just hollow and doesn't ring true about it because you know the voice of the shepherd. And the only way that you know the voice of the shepherd doesn't come from the study or the intellect or all the theology you may have in your mind, though it helps and supports. It comes because he is your shepherd, because you are known by him and you know him. He says, the sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So what do we do? How do we come to know the voice of God, our shepherd, Christ? Four really quick lightning things. And this is what I want you to talk about in your conversations in that community group. First, 
Take up and read. This is the word of the Lord. Take up and read. You want to know the voice of God? You want to hear him speak to you? You have to read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. Take up and read. What does Peter say when Jesus asks him if they want to leave? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. If you don't read your Bible, you're not listening to the voice of God. It doesn't matter how many podcast preachers you listen to. It doesn't matter if you come here and you get one hour a day or a week in the Bible. If you don't read your Bible, you will not hear the voice of the Lord. You can play with all the qualifications that statement may garner later. Secondly, pay attention. Read it, but don't just let it go in one ear out the other. Pay attention. Study it. Meditate. Memorize it. Pay attention to it. Mark up your Bible or have one that you're willing to mark up because I won't mark in mine. Think about it. Be students of God's Word. Pay attention to the Bible. If He speaks to you, the author and the creator and the perfecter of the universe and your faith says, I want you to know this. Should you not give it your full attention? It means not just to pay attention, but it means to turn your attention away from things that compete for it. Turn down the radio. Cut out the noise. Listen to God. Third, you need to show up to where God's people are speaking and talking about God's word. You need to be present in a life of the church which is founded upon the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophet. That's the word of God coming through people who have spent their lives and laid their own lives down to provide the foundation on which the church is built. Show up and participate in that work. As you show up, you saturate yourself deeply in the word of God. The past 45 minutes, yes, I've been screaming at you about God's word, but did you know also we sang God's word? We've read aloud God's word. We've prayed God's word already. The goal is every Sunday when you come that you leave filled with God's word in various forms or another. That you would not only show up here to church, but you would show up in the lives of others, Bible studies and homes, and your speech would be taken up. You would show up together and you'd saturate yourself in God's word. Then you will begin to know and understand what the shepherd sounds like. And lastly, you just don't stop. All the commands that God says for us to do if we follow him, it's in the, the tone of continuing. You must take up your cross and continue taking up your cross. You continue to exhort. You continue to show. You continue to read. You continue to pay attention. You never stop. This is a lifelong endeavor that you and I are on. We don't automatically know everything God wants us to know the moment we become a Christian. We haven't filled up every knowledge in our mind of the things of God. Even if we had eternity to do so, we would have never filled or exhausted God's mind. And so you never stop reading, never stop praying, never stop showing up, never stop talking. Seek, pay attention, become students, always learning, always reforming, always asking for correction, always seeking to correct, to build up, but not to tear down, to restore, to deliver. This is what the Christian church is called to do. And it does it because God's word is among them. So friends, I want to ask you, just what place of prominence does the word of God have in your life? Not theoretically on paper, but just in your life. I'm not here to, to hit you over the head with a Bible reading plan or certain laws about how often and when you should read. 
correlation between the Word of God in your life, both read, heard, sung, in all its forms, and your role as a Christian, both to obey, to glorify God, and also to reach the nations with it. If you do not know God's Word, you cannot be said to know God, for this is how He's made Himself known. So, be mindful of those who preach from the mind of men and not the mouth of God. You have the responsibility and in your hands the great privilege to read God's word for himself. And those who have received a transformed heart have Christ himself as your shepherd. And you may know his voice and be led by it. If this is not you, if you don't have Christ as your great shepherd, then this is the step for you. To ask God to speak to you even now through whatever you're feeling in your mind or heart, through whatever you have heard this morning through his word, and say, I'd be willing to follow you. You can have my obedience. You can have my steps. You can have my life. I will follow you. You have the words of eternal life. Not these false teachers, not the influencers. If I'm willing to change my diet around 30-second clip on Instagram or TikTok, I should be willing to change my life when the author of the universe says to follow me. Brother, sister, I want you to follow and hear the voice of the shepherd, your savior, saying, come and follow me. For you will know his voice, and those who do will follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, as always, your word. As inadequate as we are often to communicate it and teach it, I do pray that we, through the last 45, 48 minutes, our great shepherd, our good shepherd, who has laid down his own life for us, that we would have the benefit and the promise fulfilled in us of that new covenant, a new heart to be counted among your people and you as our God, not based on the works we do, by our simple faith alone. And because we are your people, you alone guide us through your spirit, whispering and at times bellowing out the word of God. We hear the voice of the shepherd. Give us clarity, wisdom, discernment to know how and when to walk. Turn down the volume of all those voices who compete. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.